0: If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. Around you. And uh, this passage begins on page 909, and then we'll flip the page and continue. Um, But Acts 2 1 through 21. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a story. When I was a senior in high school, my best friend Michael asked me to ride with him to Norman to uh, visit a girl that he liked. From the time that we were in middle school, he had had this crush on a girl uh, who was a year older than us, so when we were seniors in high school, she was a freshman at OU. I told him, I said, I don't want to. This is, this is going to be weird. I, I, I'm going to be a third wheel. But he said that, uh, that his parents wouldn't let him drive to Norman to see this girl unless I went with him because they thought that if I were there with him that he wouldn't get in any compromising situations and that he would make He'd make good decisions. So I told him, Richard, that his parents needed to trust him more and trust me less. I had known Michael and his family since third grade, and they should have known me better than that. Um. (laughs) But nonetheless, I agreed to go, because that's what friends do. Now, you have to, to understand the story, you've got to understand Michael's family. They were a bunch of gearheads, uh, each of them, his older brother Chris, both his mom and dad, his younger sister Stephanie, who was a few years younger than us, they all, from the time I knew, I knew them, drove smoking fast cars. This is our senior year, and at the time, Michael, um, he had a 1990 Pontiac Firebird. He'd purchased it, uh, he'd purchased it a year before at auction, and uh, man, it, it was not much to look at. Um, he was working on it, but at the time, it was not much to look at. It uh, had a cracked windshield, faded paint, mismatched wheels. The the two front wheels were different from the two back wheels, so it was not much to look at, but it did have the second largest engine of that model. It had a 305 V8 in it, um, so it had that going for it. Well, Michael, he... Uh, he didn't think this college girl would be impressed with this engine, but he thought she would certainly be unimpressed if he pulled up onto the campus of OU in this car and his beater. So he asked his older brother, uh, Chris, if we could take his car. And Chris's car was a 1985 Chevy Camaro. And it was something to look at. Man, it was beautiful. It was metallic blue. He had just had a new set of chrome wheels put on it. It had blue neon lights under it because that was a thing back in the early 90s um, among us and, uh, and the, the, the Asian street racing crew. Um, <laughs> but neon lights, so this, this 1985 Chevy Camaro, metallic blue, custom paint, custom wheels, and blue neon lights. Can we take your car, Chris? And so I about fell over when Chris tossed Michael the keys. I thought, there's no way. And before Chris could change his mind, we went out back, and we jumped in the car, and Michael turned over the key, and nothing. And he turned the key over again, and nothing. He turned it over a third time, and we're trying to listen for the sound of that clicking, you know, when the battery's dead, and all we could hear was Chris dying with laughter <laughs> on the back porch. Chris walked over, he opened the driver's side door, he reached in, he popped the hood, and then he literally fell over laughing so michael and i got out of the car and we went and looked under the hood and we saw concrete <laughs> see what had happened is a couple days earlier chris had had the engine pulled because he was having a new rebuilt engine dropped in that week but this car looked great but chris knew it had no power so michael threw the keys back at him called him a few choice names and then we drove to Norman, which is an 80 mile drive from Duncan to Norman in his 90 Pontiac. Um, we made it in considerably under an hour because he was so mad. But uh, I guess it's lead foot. Now, listen, sometimes a story, and that really happens, sometimes a story becomes a metaphor. If you're a Christian, Jesus has given you a mission. And your mission isn't to impress a girl. Your mission is to be a witness for him. Those were the very last words that he spoke to his disciples before he ascended back to the Father. We see it reiterated in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and he's taken up. Christ has left us with a mission, and it's a far more challenging mission than trying to impress a college girl is to be a witness for him, and the mission isn't to go from Duncan to Norman. It's to go from wherever God calls you and to the end of the earth. Now, to do that, what do you have to have? You've got to have power, right? It doesn't really matter what the outside looks like if there isn't any power. And at the risk of being too simplistic, since the day of Pentecost... God has been dropping new engines into otherwise beat-up cars. Because we don't look like much, but we have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, many Christians reverse it, and so they want their life to look like Chris's car. This custom paint job, custom wheels, neon lights, but no power. When instead the reality is we're much more like Michael's car. We're not much to look at. But if our faith is in Christ, we've got power. And so that's what we're going to consider today. We're going to consider the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower and indwell His people in the work of His mission. And so again, the passage is Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's pray real quick, and then we'll read God's Word. Heavenly Father... Uh, The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray, um, echoing what Jonathan prayed a moment ago, that you would guide me as I seek to faithfully preach your word, that you would guide us to be receivers of your word, that because we believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit is here with us and at work among us, that the Spirit would open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts, new hearts uh, for some of us if we're not, if our faith isn't in you. But Lord, to receive the word, that your word would work just as you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, Acts 2.1, this is God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked them, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May God write his word upon our hearts. What we just read seems crazy. It does. It seems absolutely crazy. And to understand exactly what happened and why it happened, we actually have to go back to the beginning, almost the very beginning. In Genesis 1, uh, God created men and women in His own image, Genesis 1:26 and 27. God created his man in his own image, in the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them and spoke to man and woman, and said, "Be fruitful and multiply." and fill the earth. God's very first command was for men and women to create more little image bearers. God's very first command was for men and women created in his image to create more little image bearers and disperse across the earth so that the whole earth would be filled with God's glorious image with his name. But then a handful of chapters later, mankind was already disobediently reversing the whole order of of creation, the whole order of things. Genesis 11, it's a familiar passage to some of you, don't have to turn there, just listen to it. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Can you hear what was going on? They were actively disobeying God's first command. Ten chapters later... They are actively disobeying God's original creation command. Instead of dispersing outward to make a name for God, they came together to make a name for themselves. And do you remember what the Lord did? They gathered there in a place later called Babel in the plains of Shinar. Let us make a tower with its its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves so that others will know how great we are. And the Lord said, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's words. That whole section ends. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God did for us what we would not do for ourselves. So after Babel, after the first part of Genesis 11, people scattered. Scattered. And they gathered with others who spoke the same language. And this is sort of that homogenous uh, principle unit, or homogenous unit principle, that we gather with others who who are like us, who speak the same language as us. And this has been the case since Genesis 11. God commanded them to go out and to bear, uh, to create more little image bearers so that his name and his glory and his renown and his fame, that people would see that and worship him as they witnessed it in in uh, people made in his image. But we said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Instead of going out and taking the glory of God to the ends of the earth, we're going to gather together so that people will see our glory. And God said, no, no, I'm going to play a trump card. I'm going to confuse your language so that you can't understand one another, and I'm going to disperse you. And then... Here in Acts 2, God once again miraculously intervenes. And at Pentecost, God empowered the believers to speak in other languages so that um, they understood one another in their native language. Do you understand what's happening here in Acts 2? God is reuniting his people once again, not in sin, but in the Spirit. In Genesis 11, the people are together, but they're united in sin. From there, the Lord dispersed them. Here in Acts 2, he brings them back together and unites them once again, not in sin, but in spirit. And God empowered us to fulfill the very first command to take his glory to the ends of the earth. Friends, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. And this passage is all about God providing power for his people to do what we were commanded to do at creation. This passage is about God undoing what we did at Babel. But before we can see that, before, we can, before, before that uh, becomes clear, we, we have to make sense of the whole speaking in tongue stuff. And so I want to take a moment to address that. Um, Funny enough, this morning in the intro to CPC class, we do an intro class. It's sort of a new members or a welcome to the church class um, two or three times a year. And the first week, I always go around and ask folks to introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about your background, how did you make your way to Christ Presbyterian, did you grow up in the church, what is your faith background, and, uh, and you hear all kinds of answers, and uh, this class was no different. But interestingly enough, in the nearly eight years that I've been leading that class at CPC multiple times a year, I've never had as many people in the class tell me they came from a charismatic or Pentecostal background. The reason that's humorous, at least, is because today we get to uh, make a distinction between us and our charismatic Pentecostal brothers and sisters. So let's take a moment to address that. Sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, Because as you're reading this passage, it just jumps off the page. The Spirit comes, he divides himself, and tongues of fire rest on them. They begin to speak in tongues. This is the reversal of Babel, so should we expect it to always look like this? When I was 14, uh, I had a friend who asked me if I had ever spoken in tongues. And when I told him that I hadn't, he told me that I was likely not a Christian. And and if I was a Christian, um, then I was definitely not a spirit-filled Christian. How many of you have had a conversation like that? If you haven't, you haven't lived in Tulsa very long. Um, <laughs> listen, I... I don't believe the gift of tongues is even close to the main point of this passage. It's not even close to the main point. But to understand the main point, we need to talk about tongues, not talk in tongues, talk about tongues. And so let me me make three points. Um, Three points that that I I hope will will clarify any confusion and, and reassure you of at least one thing. If you're a Christian If your faith is in Jesus, then you most assuredly are uh, a child of God. You do have the Spirit's power. And the note that I wrote down here sounds funny saying it now, but I will say it just as I wrote it. Speaking in tongues is just not a thing anymore. So three points. First, Every time speaking in tongues shows up in the Bible, which, by the way, is only three instances in the New Testament, excluding 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, which is a didactic passage teaching on the abuse of speaking in tongues, each time the gift of speaking in tongues shows up in the New Testament, it was always a known language that was unknown to the speaker. So, for example, if I were to travel to East Africa and I were to speak Swahili, which is a language um, uh, spoken in four different countries in East Africa, if I were to travel to East Africa, speak in Swahili, and the people there understood me clearly in their native tongue, that would be the gift of tongues. That would be what the New Testament word, the Greek word glossolalia. The reason that's a a pretty incredible gift is because I, I don't know Swahili. I wouldn't know it if I heard it. And so the gift of tongues, both here in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, as well as 1 Corinthians, when when we don't see an actual use of it, but Paul's um, talking about the abuse of it. Each time it is always a known language that is unknown to the speaker. It is never just rambling gibberish. So to to understand what was going on here, you have to understand this is not not me breaking out in some ecstatic utterance. I've been present three times when someone supposedly um, was given the gift of tongues and spoken them. And each time, it was never a known language that was unknown to the speaker. It was always um, some ecstatic dialogue. There was never any interpretation. We'll talk about why that's problematic here in a second. But in the New Testament, glossolalia, there's a a word that our charismatic and Pentecostal friends have invented, xenolalia, um, to describe what they think is the gift of tongues. Unfortunately, it's just not found in the New Testament. Glossolalia is found in the New Testament, but it's always a known language unknown to the speaker. Second, the gift of tongues always in the Bible, was gospel-focused. It was always gospel-focused. It was either given to communicate the gospel to an unreached people group or confirm that the gospel message, in fact, brings conversion. It was never given in the context of healing. It was never given in the context of faith confirmation. It was always given... um, to to communicate or confirm the gospel and that's why the gospel show that's why the gift of tongue shows up here in acts 2 there, there are 12 plus people groups who are gathered 12 groups of people who had never heard the gospel and so the spirit empowered them to communicate what verse 11 calls the mighty works of god The mightiest work of God is the gospel. We talked about that again this morning in the intro to CPC class. That that God would love wicked sinners like us. That's the greatest miracle. Creation is a miracle. Jesus being born of a virgin, that's a miracle. Jesus rising from the dead, that is a miracle. What happens here in Acts 2? This is a miracle. But the greatest miracle is that God would take sinners and make them saints, that he would take us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, that he would take wicked people like us and save us and call us sons and daughters. That is a miracle. And so throughout the Bible, God often accompanies the great miracle of salvation with what I would call minor miracles to testify and and give validity to, the greatest miracle. When Paul addressed the abuse of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, he said that it was a confirming sign for those who had not yet believed. It had no place among those who had already heard the gospel and believed. It wasn't for their benefit. In fact, that's exactly what he, that's the language he says Tongues are, for, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for those who believe not. It's been almost universally accepted that when John completed Revelation, the book of Revelation that I, I would contend that he wrote in the early 90s of the first century, that when he completed that work, Um, God had then given us his full revelation, his full gospel word. And so speaking in tongues is no longer needed or valid because the gospel message which has been been set forth plainly in Scripture. And so, so far, one, it's always a known language unknown to the speaker and that known language is always communicated to the hearer, either miraculously like we see in Acts 2 or through an interpreter. When I go to... um, Cuba in May, as I've gone every year in the winter, um, I speak a little Spanish enough just to get me in trouble to find my way back to the airport or to ask where the bathroom is. That's what I know about Spanish, right? Donde esta la baña? Where can I find the bathroom? I got to go? That's about it. You know, how much is this item that I want to buy? That, that's the extent of my Spanish. So when I go down there and preach, I have to have an interpreter, now, it's not, I'm not speaking an entirely unknown language. I did have two semesters of Spanish in, in high school, <laughs> uh, to the chagrin of my teacher. But I don't know Spanish, so I have an interpreter. So, tongues, first of all, always, 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 a known language unknown to the speaker, where that known language is then received to the hearer, either through a miracle of God or through an interpreter, to... It's always gospel-focused, either given to communicate the gospel to an unreached people group, I don't know, say Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, or to confirm conversion that accompanies the gospel. And third, after Acts was written, so remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, Acts was written likely in, the, uh, in 61, 62, 63 AD of the first century. After Acts was written, for the next 200 years, there are only two known references to speaking in tongues. Irenaeus mentioned it once in the late 7th century or 2nd century, and Tertullian in the year 207 AD said, I have heard reports at least that there are those who speak in unknown tongues. And so after this event, after Acts 10, Acts 19, For the next 200 plus years it's only mentioned twice in Christian history and then to me this is one of the most compelling there's no credible mention of tongues again until the 17th century when a man named Edward Burrow who was a Quaker wrote in his journal that uh, in their meetings there were people speaking in new tongues 1600 years passed and scant a mention of it. No teaching on it. No, hey, I'm writing in my diary, dear diary, this afternoon, you'll never believe what happened. There's just none of that for 1,600 years. And so we can conclude either the Holy Spirit just said, hey, I'm not going to work anymore, I'm not going to fill and dwell and empower believers anymore. The gospel is no longer important to communicate anymore. Or this was for a season until God's revelation had been given completely. None of the reformers, whether they were of the Lutheran variety, the, um, the, the English variety, the Presbyterian variety, none of the reformers, even the Baptists, believed that speaking in tongues was a continuing gift of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues was just not a thing until 1901. In 1901, at the Azusa Street Revival, a young student named uh, Agnes Osman prayed for the elders of the church to surround her and to pray over her, and it's recorded in someone's journal that when they prayed over her, she began to speak in an unknown tongue. Here's what I'd like you to take away just from this, and I, I said more about this than I meant to. In the New Testament speaking in tongues was a specific language for a specific purpose, and it was never prescribed. It was, however, described. That's an important distinction you have to make in Acts. M- many times, it's something is described, this is what happened, but it's not prescribed as in, this is what must happen. It's never prescribed Uh, as a gift that every Christian would possess or should desire. It's simply described as a miraculous gift of God that he used for a season as his people were going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What happened at Pentecost here in Acts 2 is the reversal of Babel. In Genesis 11, God separated us by language because of our sin. But in Acts 2, he united us once again in the Spirit. In our common language that we have, we do have a common language, but it's not any human language, it's the word of the gospel. And so the reason I've, uh, I've tried to spend some time clarifying this, spent too much time clarifying this, is because I want you to understand something very important. The Holy Spirit is just as present and active today as he was on the day of Pentecost, In, in our particular circle, in our particular branch of, of the Christian church, we talk a lot about God the Father, His majesty, His might, His holiness, His transcendence. We talk a lot about the work of Jesus, His incarnation, His perfect life, His penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ is victor as He was raised. From. We spend a lot of time talking about that. We don't spend much time talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is just as present and active today among us, even though we can't figure out what to do with our hands, as He was on the day of Pentecost. But that doesn't mean that we should expect the Holy Spirit to work in exactly the same way that He did. This passage, again, is descriptive, not prescriptive. And so, I said it a moment ago, if speaking in tongues is not the main point of this passage, what is? Well, the main point of this passage is that the Holy Spirit is given to every single believer to empower us as witnesses. Two thoughts. Don't be nervous because we're just now getting to the outline. (laughs) Kickoff isn't until 525. Two thoughts. The Holy Spirit's given to every believer. The Holy Spirit has always been present and active. The Holy Spirit has always been present and active. The the Holy Spirit shows up in the second verse of Scripture. The Spirit hovered over the face of the deep The Holy Spirit has always been present and active. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit gave certain figures extraordinary gifts, um, feats of strength. We see that in Joshua, Gideon, Samson, and Saul, that he worked in specific people for a specific purpose. The Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets. We see this particularly in the writing of Ezekiel, who said, "...it was the Spirit of God who gave me my prophetic words." The Spirit of God, we see this often in the travels of of the nation of Israel after they had left Egypt before they entered the Promised Land. In those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, the, uh, the, the Scriptures record for us that the Spirit was present in their midst. But Pentecost, Acts 2, inaugurated a new era because the Holy Spirit is no longer just present in our midst, He is working in every single believer. He is present, living, and at work in every single believer. And so the group of people who were gathered here, it says when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. Who is the all? Well, it's the same 120-plus people that were there in chapter 1 who gathered for prayer to open up the Scriptures to appoint uh, Judas's replacement. The same 120 group of people, and and some were apostles, some were disciples, many were women. And verses 3 and 4 tell us the Holy Spirit appeared and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that, that when we believe in Jesus... That when we believe in Jesus, after hearing the word of truth, which is the gospel, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that when we are united to Jesus by faith, in his death and resurrection, we are united to him by the Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson has written a wonderful book it's it's a I quoted from it at the bulletin in the bulletin early on it's a book called The Holy Spirit and he says this It is in believing into Christ that the spirit of Christ is received There is no other mode of receiving the spirit than by faith's reception of Christ To have Christ is to have the spirit There is no second blessing There is no coming later of the Holy Spirit to empower and indwell. When you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit took up residence within you and gave you all authority and all power. And so this is the good news. It doesn't matter if you're a new Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian who barely knows your Bible. It doesn't matter if you're a young child or a seasoned saint. The Holy Spirit is given to every single believer at their conversion. This, this means, friends, that, that I have power, and I have since I was 14. It means that you have power, because why? We have been empowered. The Holy Spirit is given to every single believer. What are we empowered for? Here's the second thought. The Holy Spirit is given to empower us as witnesses. Remember Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other uttermost parts of the earth. The Spirit was given not so that we could do cool parlor tricks. The Spirit was given to empower us as witnesses. And the great thing about this is it's not just for the apostles. The Spirit's not just given to the apostles. All who were gathered, 120 plus, were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit rested upon all of them, not just the apostles. Which means today, it's not just for me and Jason and Ethan, those of us who've gone to seminary. This call to be witnesses for Jesus isn't just for the elders, the men who lead the church. It's a call for every believer, every believer who has been indwelt and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have His power at work within us, and this is the goal, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so the Holy Spirit comes. And he indwells them. He empowers them. And by the way, this is, this is not in my notes. And I got in trouble last week by saying some stuff that wasn't in my notes because I just kind of went off and, and uh, went down a trail. But I'm going to do it again because <laughs> I learn. Um, just, just make this a part of your practice. Study it's like it's like wash, rinse, repeat. Study, study, study. Figure out. There are passages in the Bible, particularly in the Gospels and particularly in Acts. Those are historical records. They record for us the life and ministry of Jesus and the times of the early church. After that, um, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, Titus, First and Second Timothy, Philemon. All those those are more didactic passages they are writings meant to instruct us in faith and life but the gospels while they provide instruction are primarily a historical record so in them god is sometimes but not always prescribing what we're called to do but he is always describing what was done do you understand the difference and so when you're reading through the book of Acts, you have to do some hard work and say, is, is the Lord, in giving me his word, is he prescribing what I'm supposed to do or what the church today is supposed to do, or is he simply describing what was done 2,000 years ago? It's hard work, but it's necessary work. Because we have to understand the distinction as we're working through this historical record. Is, is God telling me what happened for my benefit, or is he, telling, is he calling me to something? Acts 1.8, he is calling you to something. He's calling you to be a witness. Not just the first church, but everyone is called to be a witness. But the, the whole speaking in tongues thing, that was a description, not a prescription. So the Holy Spirit comes and appears to them and, and rests upon them, and fills them, and empowers them, and they speak with tongues, and all these different people hear in their own language. And then Peter stood up, and he began to preach, and he based his sermon on the writing of the prophet Joel, and Joel prophesied that this day would come. Joel foretold the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that one day this would come. And I want you to understand the unity and the scope of the Spirit's work. Did you see that as we were reading? When the Spirit comes, He breaks down all of those divisions that have existed for for millennia. All of those divisions. He breaks down the division between sons and daughters. Young men, old men, male servants, female servants. Paul talks about this later, that we are baptized into one spirit, that we're united by the same spirit. So there's no, for, there's therefore now no distinction between uh, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. We would say today black, white, American, uh, Mexican. All of these distinctions, we are one in the spirit. And Joel told this day would come. All of those Old Covenant categories that used to divide people are broken down by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because there's no place or people group beyond the reach of God's Spirit. There's no place beyond the reach of God's Spirit when God works through His church. And notice what the Spirit's goal is. That's why we end it here. We kind of stop in the middle of a sermon. This is Peter's sermon. He's preaching from Joel. And I stopped us at verse 21. We're going to pick up with this same sermon next week. But at the end of verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the goal of our witness. That's the Spirit's power at work. That when God empowers us as witnesses to bring his message of salvation, God works through us to bring salvation. He works through his people. He works through the church to bring his salvation. You know, Pentecost, it was an amazing event. It was an amazing event that inaugurated a new era. It ushered in the new covenant. But I, I want you to believe the Holy Spirit is still at work. The Holy Spirit is still at work. Imagine If you were sick on a Sunday and you couldn't make it to worship, a couple days later a church member called you and said, Richard, you're not going to believe it. On Sunday, God appeared. He appeared among us in a spiritual way but also a very real and tangible way And, and the Spirit of God rested his presence on every single one of us and then something happened that I can only describe as a God thing. If you heard that, you'd probably say, are are you the one feeling okay? It kind of sounds like you may have had too much to drink. Funny enough, the skeptics who witnessed this Holy Spirit event said that exact thing. When when they witnessed the, the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, they said, they are filled with new wine. In other words, they are drunk. And I love Peter's response. I love Peter's response. He says, no, no. These men are not drunk as you think they are because it's only 9 a.m. Now sometime, just take that and chew on it and, 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 uh, and consider the humor and importance of Peter's answer. What happened here is crazy. Seems crazy. But I want, I want to leave you with this. Friends, every single week... When we gather for worship, the same crazy event unfolds. Not in every single way, but in the same substantive way. The Holy Spirit's presence is just as real and powerful today as he was on Pentecost. That that this event, when God's people gather, and they get a glimpse of his glory, and a helping dose of the gospel, and the Spirit is there with them, at work among them, he moves his mighty works are seen, and people go out as witnesses. And that's that's the continuation of Pentecost. The same thing happens every week. And when God's people indwelt and empowered by God's Spirit do get a glimpse of his glory, it really is a God thing. It's not something that we can affect, it has to be the Spirit of God. And that's what it is the Spirit's presence. And so let's respond to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit asking for submission to the Spirit. Let's do that in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. And, and, and I pray that we would understand um, in the grand meta-narrative that what we have just read is the undoing, the, un, uh, the ending of what was done at Babel, that you did for us what we wouldn't do for ourselves. We wanted to make a name for ourselves and you wanted to make a name for yourself. And so you, you made us in your image, but we, we distorted that image. And yet at Pentecost, you undid, you undid what we did. You united us again again by your Spirit. You gave us the gift of the Spirit, the ability to speak in language, the mighty works of God, to proclaim the gospel so that others might know it. And now uh, we live on this side of the cross in Pentecost. We have your full revelation everything necessary for life and godliness has been given to us. And so I pray we wouldn't think that we are lesser than these people gathered here, that we wouldn't look for something that we shouldn't be looking for, but we would know that if our faith is in Jesus, then we have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and the ability to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. It is ours. You've given it to us. And so Lord, do again for us day in day in, day out, what we can't do for ourselves. Work through us in Jesus' name. Amen.